0: Acts 22, we are picking up a study through the book of Acts, and if you caught the scroll there, um, Paul has encountered the trouble in Jerusalem that he knew was coming, and we're going to talk some more about that, but he raises his hand to speak to a very hostile mob that has already beaten him mercilessly, and this is what he says, chapter 22, Verse 1, I'm going to read 22 verses here of chapter 22. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when, he heard that, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. the Lord, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste. And get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I want to talk with you this morning about When doing the right thing causes offense. Let's pray together. Lord, um, I imagine in a room this size, this many people, that there's some offended people in here. I imagine that there are those who are living in the midst of offense. People are offended with them. And we don't typically handle that well. And so I pray today we we've sung about it you you've made us free you've set us free and so could it be possible that today some chains of offense are going to fall off some hearts and lives that people would be free to live in a way that seems upside down to our world to how we typically handle things like this we see a man paul who stood in the midst of offense like a champion And we want to learn from him, from your holy word and the sacred history. So Holy Spirit, teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. amen, amen. So, if you remember when we last left off, the Apostle Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. We're going to live in this story for a little bit and then we're going to make some application, okay? So just live in the story with me and then we're going to talk about how we apply this to us. Paul has set his face like a flint on the city of Jerusalem. That's where he's going. That's where he's headed. He's bound and determined to get there, despite the fact that friends, prophets, traveling companions, elders from churches that he started are telling him, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. There's trouble awaiting you there. But Paul is undeterred. He will not be persuaded. There's been begging and pleading and crying and praying, praying but he is going to Jerusalem. And so at, in, in the middle of chapter 21, verse 14, I'm put that on the screen, Trevor. Chapter 21, verse 14, there was just this collective resignation among all in Paul's camp that, you know what? Paul's going to Jerusalem, and it's the Lord's will, despite what we know is ahead for him. And the Holy Spirit had testified To Paul himself, Luke tells us, that trouble was ahead in Jerusalem. But Paul was undeterred. He was going to Jerusalem no matter what. One of the things that's so important for us to understand about Paul is that Paul was born a Jew and he was a devout Jew prior to coming to Christ. What we just read in chapter 21 is Paul standing up before a very hostile crowd of Jews who oppose him and he's giving a defense of his history, okay? I don't think that Paul's focus here is preaching in order that people get saved, okay? It's not that Paul would have said no if somebody wanted to get saved, but Paul is giving a defense of himself. He's like, this is what has happened to me, but he wants these Jews to know, look, I'm one of you. I'm one of you. And here's what he tells them. He says, look, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was raised in Jerusalem. All my upbringing was surrounded and saturated with the Jewish customs and law and tradition. I am one of you. Not only that, but he says, I persecuted the way. Everybody say the way. That's how the Jews referred to this movement that we now call Christianity. They called it the way, okay? And so Paul says, look, I was such a zealous Jew that I persecuted the way. I drugged men and women out of their homes and imprisoned them and punished them because they were beginning to follow this way that amounted to the greatest threat to Judaism in Paul's day. In fact, this is what Paul says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. You can kind of hear an echo of this in Acts 22. But he says, chapter 3, verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's Paul's roots. And he's rehearsing his roots with this hostile mob that's already tried to kill him. Okay? Now, here's another thing to understand about Paul. He was not only a devout Jew... Lord, help me. get. I, I don't know how to frame this for us, but he loved the Jews. He loved them. I mean, I just can't overstate that, how much he loved them. You remember two weeks ago when, we, when I preached the sermon on tithing and we read from 2 Corinthians 9 about how God loves a cheerful giver? You know what was going on there is that Paul was raising money from Gentile churches that he started to relieve the suffering of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and so now Paul has arrived in Jerusalem and guess what he's brought with him all that money that he raised from church after church you remember the Macedonians and how they begged to give even though they were poor and going through all kinds of difficulty he's got the Macedonian generosity with him in Jerusalem, right now, he loved the Jews. Here's how much he loved them, okay? This is probably one of the most fascinating verses in all of the Bible. Romans, chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, why would you make a statement like that? Because I'm about to say something you're not going to believe. Right? That's, That's why he's saying that. Look, I'm not lying. Anybody ever said that? I'm not lying. It's what he's saying. I'm not lying. Look at this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews. This is literally what he means. And I don't know how any any man or woman could ever make a statement like this. If it would get them saved, the Jews, I would go to hell. That's literally what he's saying. If it would get them saved, I would give up my salvation so that they, my kinsmen, the Jews could be saved. Let me be honest with you. I don't understand this about Paul. We know that when Jesus met him on the Damascus road, that Jesus said to him, "I'm calling you to who?" The Gentiles. That was Paul's calling. But we've read through Acts and we've studied through Acts and we know that this was his pattern. Paul would show up in a Gentile city and the first thing he did was go to the Jewish synagogue and try to reason with the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Every time. And I don't know if you're this way, but I read the book of Acts and I'm like, Paul, come on, man. God didn't call you to the Jews. He called you to the Gentiles. Why are you wasting time with them? Because... Inevitably, in every city, this was his pattern, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Galatia, Philippi, on and Corinth, on and on. He goes into the synagogue, he tries to reason with the Jews, and they revile him. They can't stand him. They stone him. They beat him. They drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. They, scores of Gentiles come to Christ, but the Jews revile him. And you might remember that we read in Acts that he actually gets to the city of Corinth, goes in the synagogue, reasons with the Jews, scores of Gentiles get saved. But the Jews revile him and oppose him. And he gets to the point where he says this. He says, I'm done with y'all. I'm only going to go to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own heads. And he takes his leave of the synagogue. Now, he didn't live up to that promise. But you can kind of get his frustration, right? He's done with them. But yet he raises the offering. He keeps going to the Gentiles. And then the Lord says, go to Jerusalem. That just doesn't make sense to me. Has the Lord's will for your life ever not made sense? You ever been in a place where you had a sense about what he was calling you and leading you to do? And it just doesn't add up. I mean, I look at Paul. You can kind of understand why his traveling companions would have looked at him and said, Paul, enough is enough. You, you preach to Gentiles and they, they come to faith left and right. Why are you fooling with the Jews? Just stop it. Why would you even consider going to Jerusalem? But it's the Lord's will. We need to understand that because sometimes the will of God doesn't make sense at first. And we try to judge the Lord's will many times by the wrong standards. We think we're in the Lord's will if everybody likes us. If everybody's cheering us on. Well, I'm winning. I must be in the Lord's will. You might be playing the wrong game. The Lord's will doesn't necessarily come along with Everybody being happy with us and everything going smoothly. Sometimes you can be in the dead center of God's will and it look like and feel like everything's coming apart. Sometimes. That's where Paul is. Paul shows up in Jerusalem. Okay? And here's the first thing he does. I want to read it with you. Let's back up to Acts chapter 21. He's in the Lord's will. He loves the Jews dearly. And he's finally arrived in Jerusalem. Despite all of his friends and loved ones telling him don't go, he's finally here. And here, let's look and see what happens. Verse 17 of chapter 21. When we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly. So we're talking about the church in Jerusalem. These are Jews that have become Christians. And they, he has now arrived at the church there in Jerusalem. And on the following day, Paul went with, in with us to James, who's the brother of Jesus. He's kind of the head elder in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles... Through his ministry. So he's testifying to them, to these Jews in Jerusalem who are now Christians hey, guys, here's what God did among all the Gentiles. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They had a little joyful celebration. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. We know this. Remember at Pentecost? How many were saved that day? 3,000. And then when Peter and John healed the lame man, thousands more got saved. And Luke tells us that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So the number of Christian Jews in Jerusalem by this point is in the thousands, okay? So that's what they said. Look, Paul, there are thousands who have believed now, and they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Womp, womp, womp. Rumors. Rumors are being spread. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Bald people are more holy. throw that out there. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And we'll stop right there. So when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he goes and he meets with the elders of the church and he tells them, Hey, this is all that God has been doing through our ministry among the Gentiles, and they are overwhelmed with joy. It's almost like a ticker tape parade for a hero who's come home from battle. But there's quickly a wet blanket that's thrown on that celebration because a rumor has started. And the rumor is that Paul is going around among the Gentiles and telling Jews even in other Gentile cities to forsake the law of Moses, to despise the temple, to do away with all the customs and traditions of the Jews. And it's just not true. Has anybody ever said anything about you that wasn't true? They have about me. I mean, maybe I'm the only one in here. Anybody ever spread a fault? You Ever had somebody spread a false rumor about you that hurt you? Yeah, raise your hand. Come on, let's just be honest, we've all been there. This is what's happened for Paul. There is a seed of jealousy, envy and a desire to bring Paul down among the church among the church. Yeah, Paul knew he was going to face trouble in Jerusalem when he got there, but I doubt he realized that it was first going to come from the church. You don't have to raise your hand or say amen, but anybody in here ever been hurt by the church? There's a rumor, and it's not true. Yes, Paul taught Gentiles, converts, that they didn't have to be circumcised, that that was not a requirement or a law anymore, but do you realize... When Paul picked up Timothy, his son in the faith, that he planted in Ephesus as the pastor of that church that he started, do you know what one of the first things he did to Timothy? He circumcised him. You know why? So that he wouldn't offend the Jews. Paul said to the Jew, I became like a Jew. If Paul sat down in a Gentile home and they served meat, guess what Paul did? He ate meat. If he sat down to eat with the Jews, he was sensitive to their customs and traditions. Paul was flexible. This rumor was not true. And so Paul no more than gets the testimony out of his mouth of all that God has done in and through his ministry enterprise Then they tell him, Paul, people been talking. They say, I'd like to find they. Who's they? They say... This is what you're about. So, what are we going to do about it, Paul? Here's what we need to do. There are four men in the church that are under a Nazarite vow. Just real quickly, so you understand what's going on. Nazarite vow meant that for 30 days, these dudes would not drink wine or cut their hair. So, at the end of the 30 days, they would go through a ritual that would last seven days where they would cut their hair and they would burn their hair, they'd shave their heads and burn their hair along with the sacrifice. And that sacrifice would cost money. So here's what they say to Paul. Paul, we want you to shave your head with these guys and then pay for their sacrifice, burn your hair with their hair. I don't know about you, but I might have looked at them and said, are you kidding me? They've been talking about they been talking about me and you want me to shave my head and go through all this business that I don't even believe is necessary according to the gospel just to squelch the rumor? That's what you want me to do? That's what I would have said maybe. But that's not what Paul did. He agrees. I don't think he had a bad attitude about it either. I think he was putting his money where his mouth is. Because this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a humdinger of a verse, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we got we to gotta put some qualifications on that, Paul, Right? Because we don't want to be doormats. We don't want to let people walk all over us. They're spreading rumors. We've we, we got to defend ourselves. we got to let them know that they need to keep their mouths shut. That's not what Paul did. I see a humble Paul who dearly loves his Jewish brothers who said, okay, If that's what it takes, I'll shave my head. It's not necessary. I don't have to do it. But I'll do it. So he does. Shaves his head. They're almost through the seven-day ritual. And then it hits the fan. Some Jews show up from Asia. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Keep in mind that this is the Feast of Pentecost again. So everybody's back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Talking about the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, which was against the law and at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to kill him word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So you you get the whole context here. These are Jews from Asia Minor, specifically from the city of Ephesus, where Paul's already battled these guys. He's already battled these guys. And they have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They come into the temple. And guess who's there? Paul. And they are ticked we've already rejected this guy and what's he doing in the temple and then they see this guy trophimus who's an ephesian a gentile convert to christianity and they make another false accusation that paul had taken him into the holy place now if you know anything about the temple okay real quick there was an outer court called the court of the gentiles and if you and i were in jerusalem in the temple that is the only place we could go There was an inner court called the Holy Place that had a big old sign that essentially said, probably a little nicer than this, if you're a Gentile, get out. It was a capital offense. Get your mind around this. A capital offense for a Gentile to be in the Holy Place. And they accused Paul of taking Trophimus into the Holy Place, and they get so stirred up. They grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple, and they beat him, and they're going to kill him. That's their goal. They're going to kill him. And the only thing that stops them is the local Roman garrison. You know what's eerily similar about this? Is This is the exact same historical spot where our Lord and Savior faced a crazy mob that shouted, crucify him and this local roman garrison grabs his soldiers goes out to see what's going on he stops the beating commands that paul be chained and tries to figure out what's going on and here's what luke tells us is that this person was saying one thing this person was saying another that person was saying another you ever been in a conflict where everybody's offended and you can't figure out who's right When offense takes over, the truth often becomes hard to find. You ever been in a fight with your spouse and all of a sudden you can't even remember what started the whole thing? I've never had that happen in my marriage. You ever had a trusted friend... And all of a sudden it takes one little thing and the offense rises up and you try to get help from other people and it's all about which side somebody's taking because this person's got one take, this person's got another and all of a sudden we're all offended and you can't make sense of the confusion. That's what's going on right here. Roman Garrison can't figure it out so here's what he does. The mob is so crazy, the soldiers literally pick Paul up on their shoulders like they're carrying off you know, the MVP off the field after the game. They pick him up on their shoulders and they have to carry him out as people continue to try to punch and kick and spit on Paul. They finally get him out of there and Paul looks at the Roman commander and he says, Can I speak to the people? And so the commander agrees and Paul I think in one last ditch effort to try and connect with these people that hated him, that he dearly loved, he speaks to them in Hebrew. And for a while they're silent. And he tells them, I'm one of you. You can almost hear Romans 9 coming through Paul's words and his tone As he looks at them and says, I would be cut off from Christ for your sake if it would make a difference. And he pleads with them and he tells them the story of how, look, me, a devout Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless according to the law. I was on my way to Damascus. I was going to grab some more Christians and throw them in jail. Men or women, I didn't care. But Jesus met me. And he tells them, about his encounter with Christ, almost like he's saying, look, I didn't go looking for this. I didn't seek this out. But I met my Lord. And He called me to the Gentiles. And at that point, the silence ended. And the place goes nuts and they start shouting away with Him. This man does not deserve to be alive just like they shouted for Jesus to be crucified and i wonder if there was an echo in the back of paul's mind somewhere of jesus's words when he said this look if they hated me they're going to hate you also i almost feel sorry for paul when i think about the countless hours of reasoning with him with the jews in city after city when i think about How he went from church to church that he started and he raised and advocated for the offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The very people that would spread this rumor about him, he raised an offering for them. When I think about the fact that he would have cut himself off from Christ for their own salvation if possible, that that's what he would have done. And that city after city he kept on reasoning with the Jews even though they were the very ones that reviled him and persecuted him, tortured him. You almost want to say to Paul, Paul, stop with the Jews already. Just go to the Gentiles. They they love you. They receive you. They get saved by the dozens and the hundreds when you preach. Why? But I think there are some things that even though I said we, that I kind of feel sorry for Paul, I think there are some things we can learn from him. That we need to learn from Him. Because one of the greatest problems in our society today is our lack of ability to deal with offense. We disagree. We don't know how to disagree and not get offended. We don't know how to handle it when people are offended with us when we stand for what we believe to be true and right and it's a huge problem I think it's hindering the mission of the church not that God's plans are ultimately subject to human weakness and frailty but when it comes to our collective participation with Jesus in his kingdom work our inability to deal with offense it's a huge problem and it's limiting our influence I think there are three things we can learn from Paul here. Three ways in which Paul lived in the midst of offense that I think are powerful and life-changing and could set us free if we'll listen to them. Let me give you number one. Three ways that Paul lived well in offense. Number one, Paul cultivated affection for his enemies. He cultivated affection for his enemies. We we know what Jesus said, right? Love your let's say it together. Love your I don't think that Jesus said love your enemies and really meant just tolerate them. You know, just don't don't hit back. Don't 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 get revenge. But I mean, you know, you Just talk about the fact that you love them, but you don't really have to. I think Jesus meant that we are to have genuine affection for those who do evil against us. That's like, that's radical, isn't it? That's earth shattering. And yet here's Paul raising an offering For the very people who would oppose him. For the very people who would become jealous, envious of him, and spread false rumors about his message and what he was actually calling people to do. Paul raised an offering for them and he came into Jerusalem presenting this offering out of genuine affection. I think Paul depended on the Spirit to love his enemies and not just in a token tolerating sort of I'll deal with you but just pretend you're not there kind of way but he genuinely loved them just stop and ask yourself right now who is it that is my enemy who is it that has visited evil and injustice on me and could it be could it be That God actually wants to put genuine affection in your heart for them. I'm not talking about sweeping whatever they've done to you under the rug or ignoring it or pretending like it didn't happen. I'm talking about, you know what the Bible says? love covers a multitude of... It's possible for someone to have visited evil on you and you not ignore it But have such Holy Spirit generated affection for them that you're not holding it against them. I think Paul had genuine affection for his enemies. That's number one. Here's number two Paul did everything he could to eliminate unnecessary offense. Paul did everything he could to eliminate unnecessary offense. I said it earlier but if they'd have come and asked me to shave my head for the sake of people that were spreading rumors about me just think about how we typically respond to that I'm not doing that that's ridiculous I don't owe them that I'm going to give them a piece of my mind but he did he, he, he partook in that ritual I think, you know, there is something to be said for choosing your battles wisely. I'll come back to that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Paul did everything he could to eliminate unnecessary offense. And here's number three. Paul stood for the truth of Christ even when he was attacked for it. He did not compromise on what Jesus had done in his life or what he knew Jesus had called him to do. He stood his ground in the midst of offense. He took offense for the sake of the name of Christ. You with me? All right? So I think he... Partnered with the Holy Spirit to have genuine affection for his enemies. He did all he could to eliminate unnecessary offense. And he stood for Christ in the midst of offense. Now, what do we do with that? Let me give you four challenges. Okay? Four challenges. Number one, whatever offense you're holding on to, give it to Jesus. There's no buts, there's no caveats, there's no commas on the end of that sentence. Whatever offense you're holding on to, it's killing you. You, You've probably heard the the little analogies is that holding on to offense is like letting somebody live rent free in your head. It's like drinking poison hoping somebody else gets sick. It's killing you. And if you're holding on to it, though there's something in you and there's something in me that says, if I hold on to it, I'm going to feel better. I'll feel better. And and somehow, some weird way, I'll hurt them back if I hold on to it. If I hold on to it, I'll be ready to seize the moment when I can get them back. It's a defensive posture. It's a combative posture to hold on to offense so that we're in the position to attack back. And it's not just because God's trying to leverage a rule over our heads that we need to love our enemies. It's that He wants us to be free. And the truth is, you are free. You are free. I'm not just telling you, look, regardless of what they did, just get over it. It's like a punch in the gut and then just somebody telling you just get over it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because of what Christ has done in you and me, because God has given us his spirit, that we now live according to the law of the spirit of life, you can let go. Yes. Yes. It's a lie that says you have to hold on to that. It's a lie from the enemy. Maybe that lies being perpetuated by people close to you and around you, but here's what I came to tell you. You can let go and be free of that offense. If you're holding on to it or you feel bound by it, there's only one reason you haven't let go. And you can. So let go of whatever offense you're holding on to. Here's number two. Instead of being offended, depend on the Spirit to have genuine affection for your enemies. Instead of being offended, depend on the Spirit to have genuine affection for those that have hurt you. Even for those that maybe are offended with you. And here's where I get that notion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. This is Paul writing, and he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I love his little summary statements. It's like, you know, the word um, idle really there is better translated unruly. If you got somebody unruly in your life, here's Paul's instruction. Admonish them, but be patient. If you got somebody that's weak and faint-hearted in your life, be patient. Encourage them, right? Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. Okay, so in the church or in my family, We we just seek to do good to one another, just in in those contexts. But if somebody's outside the church, or it's it's a neighbor that I don't really know, or somebody at work that really gets on my nerves, you're not including them, are you, Paul? And to everyone. Just in case we wanted to put some caveats, do good to one another, don't repay evil for evil, and do that to everyone. Yeah, but Paul, no, everybody. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then look at verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Paul didn't change the subject. He's literally saying that the Holy Spirit who dwells in me and dwells in you is always prompting you to be patient with the faint-hearted, to admonish the unruly, and to be patient with everybody. And to whomever does evil to you, don't repay them with evil, but repay them with good. Giving thanks in all circumstances, whether you faced injustice or not, give thanks and. Don't quench the Spirit because that's what He wants to do in your life in all of those circumstances. That's hit part of His supernatural work in the believer. Can I tell you something? The, the Christian life is not a natural life. i got to say that again because you didn't get it. The Christian life is not a natural life. It's a life where we, by the Spirit and the Spirit's supernatural power, love our enemies. Where by the power of the Spirit we give thanks in all circumstances because that's the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. I think Paul had to be depending on the Spirit. Number three. Make it your mission to stand for Christ, not your opinions and preferences. Make it your mission to stand for Christ, not your opinions and preferences. You know, I don't pretend to know everything, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not perfect. God help me. I think I've lived long enough to know that every opinion I have doesn't need to be shared on Facebook. I think I've lived long enough and I've learned enough that just because somebody says something, has an opinion that I disagree with, doesn't necessarily mean that I need to engage them. There was a, I had a lot of country music fans in the first service. I don't know about this one, but there was an old country song. I can't even remember who sang it, but it was something like, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Look at y'all country music people. I hear you. There, there is wisdom in choosing your battles wisely. There is a time to take a stand for Christ, for the gospel, for the truth. But just because you have a political opinion that you feel really strongly about doesn't mean that you need to get into some heated debate and have all kinds of offense rise up over politics. Because, listen, I'm not trying to bash America, but let me just say this, I've said it before, America is not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. And and your alignment with one political party or figure or another is not an eternal issue. I don't care what their platform is. All the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His christ our job is to be preaching the message that this jesus that died and rose again god has made him both lord and christ and i'm no longer a citizen of this earth america china or anywhere else i'm a citizen of the kingdom i'm a citizen of the kingdom it doesn't mean i don't care or i don't prayerfully vote or that i don't have opinions about issues but it means that I understand I'm not going to let offense in those areas do anything to rob my joy in Christ or anybody else's. Because it's not a kingdom issue. Regardless of what our opinions are about cultural norms, about political agendas. There should be a collective peace among the people of God that we're going to stand for Christ. We're going to preach Him and Him crucified, Him risen, Him ascended, and Him returning to reign in power forever. And that's where we're going to stand. And if people get offended with that, so be it. We'll depend on the Spirit to love those people. Which leads me to the fourth and final thing as the praise team comes. Let your security in Jesus be your firm footing when dealing with offense. Let your security in Jesus be your firm footing when dealing with offense. We're about to sing about the grace of God that He's lavished on us and poured out on us And we're doing that because we want to be reminded of our security in Him, our assurance that we are His and He is ours. Because you realize that as a born-again, Spirit-filled believer, our lives are not on a trajectory to try and accumulate the praise of people. That's not what drives our lives. That's not what rules, listen, over our emotions is whether people are happy with us or not. That's not what rules over our lives. What rules over our lives is that we belong to Jesus and we didn't deserve that, we didn't earn that. And truly the only opinion of us that matters in the universe is His. And so because of that, Because of grace, we have favor with God. We can be free. Everybody say free. Free to depend on the Spirit to love our enemies. To love those that are offended with us. To do everything we can. To adopt a new mindset and mentality that we're going to do everything we can to eliminate unnecessary offense. Because can I tell you this? This is a little caveat you can take with you. The heart of a maverick will only limit influence. But when we endeavor to maintain the bond of peace is when we gain favor. The people that I've tried to stand my ground with and go toe-to-toe with over opinions and preferences are generally the people that I've lost influence in their life. But the people that I forgave and loved and returned evil with good are probably the people whose door, the doors of their hearts are most open to me. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. So you're free. Let your security in Christ be the ground that you stand on when dealing with offense. And if you are carrying offense today, I want to challenge you. As we sing, let it go. Let Jesus break those chains off of your life. And let Him lead you by His Spirit to be a person who loves, forgives, gives thanks, who doesn't quench the Spirit. Stand with me. Lord, I don't know... I don't know how this message has hit every person in this room but I know that this is a big problem. It's in the church and it's outside the church. And I ask that what would come now as we sing is freedom. Freedom. Freedom from either living in offense or letting the offense of others bring us down and cause us to be discouraged. So... Do what you do, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.